Welcome everyone to another episode of the House of Wisdom podcast, where we interview academic influencers about their research and how it can shape the world. My name is Deepak Mauer, an academic. And I'm Annie Kamid, and I'm working at Cool Startup. Which is definitely right. I uh, can definitely agree with that. So, um, exciting thing. So we're just going, I think we're going to go straight into it. Uh, this episode, we're looking at mental health. It's something that we're really interested in. It's a big topic. It's something that's been talked about a lot, especially in the five or, last five or 10 years, which I think is really good. I think this is something that we should talk about. And this is our first kind of um, exploration on this topic. And which, So I'm really excited about you know, what's going to happen and, and the conversation about mental health that we're having in this episode. Yeah, and you know, I watched a programme the other day, actually. It was on the BBC iPlayer. Mm-hmm. And I posted it up on Instagram as well, cheekily. <laughs> it's all about improving your mental health mm-hmm. and like I've read quite a bit about it I've talked to people that are much more knowledgeable than me about it but one of the things that struck me watching that program is is that a lot of it is just about meeting those basic needs mm-hmm. getting good sleep getting good nutrition talking to people um you know of course there's obviously more you know, there's other ways you can manage your mental health, obviously talking to therapists and, you know, other techniques like that. But getting those basics right are really important. And I imagine mm-hmm. a lot of people probably don't, especially during a time like COVID, right? And I've struggled so much during this period in terms of getting the right sleep in or making sure I eat my meals. And sometimes you just, you're staring at screens so much. I've stared at screens much more during yeah. pandemic than I've ever done before. And I, don't know how it's got that got that way but i'm definitely looking at screens much more but i mean what else we can do there's not we're stuck indoors right i mean we've got to keep ourselves going entertained we're working all the time especially you know the kind of fields that we work in working on the computer is kind of the norm right so it's kind of difficult so i'm really glad we've got a guest that we could talk to about some of the underlying issues of um, mental health some of the things that we do need to address and look at so without further ado Let's jump into it. Welcome to this episode of the House of Wisdom podcast. This episode, we have Dr. Nicole Bortriba with us. Nicole is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London and focuses on global mental health, science policy interrelationships, knowledge translation, stigma and suicide prevention. She is coordinator of the Amelia and Indigo Local Studies, policy officer of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Global Health, secretary of the Executive Board of Mental Health and Human Rights, FGIP, member of the London Thrive LDN Suicide Prevention Group, and she works as a consultant for WHO, CBN and others. From 2014 to 2016, Nicole was a coordinator of Fundamental SDG, a global initiative strengthening mental health within the Sustainable Development Goals at the UN. Nicole has an MA in political science, a background in psychology, and has just completed a PhD in knowledge translation in global mental health at King's College London. Welcome, Nicole. It's great to have you here. Uh, thank you, Anik, um, and thank you, Deepak, for having me and, and for this uh, wonderful and very long <laughs> introduction. Um, it's great to be here. Great. Um, so we like to kick off each interview with a few light-hearted questions. And the first one is, if you were stuck in the House of Wisdom, who would you like to share that time with? Ah, thanks. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I'm, I'm in doubt if I should say 
Angela Merkel, because I think she's very fascinating. But eventually, I think I would decide for Hannah Arendt, who's a, a German Jewish um, political theorist and philosopher um, who was active during and after the um, Nazi regime. And she's been my inspiration um, uh, for a long time. So I definitely advocate um, having Hannah Arendt around in the House of Wisdom. That'd be really exciting because I always had this view of her and had this perception of her. Because often a lot of photos um, depict her with the cigarette and, and this very um, rebellious kind of figure, rebellious kind of uh, character. And I think you can really see that in her work and her writing. She was, you know, a critic. She was, she was very, um, you know, strong with her opinions. And I think she was really such an interesting person. And worth bearing in mind, a great political philosopher in a time, I think it's something we've definitely discussed in the past, but um, a philosopher who was in that male-dominated world, in a male-dominated um, environment, and she's standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with these kind of people. So I always found her work really interesting. And a lot of students that I've you know, taught, I've found her work really refreshing. One little um, interesting insight I quite enjoy is her, her criticism of, of human rights, which really comes quite from an interesting and personal place. So she kind of considers human rights to be like state-made and created by the state. And I think one of the reservations behind that was because of her experience with the uh, Nazi persecution and her fear of how uh, a, you know, authoritarian regime might take away those kind of rights. So it's really interesting how um, personal um, experiences really um, shape the, the philosophical ideas that come out of it. Yeah, no, I fully agree, Deepak. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's very fascinating about Hannah Arendt indeed. And I, I find she was really progressive for her time um, in her thinking and what you just mentioned, for instance, the human rights. And um, she, for her, she really detached or tried to detach the concept of human rights from the, the concept of state, which, which currently still does really endanger people who are stateless. So stateless individuals um, who are sort of in a limbo situation and not covered by human rights. And yeah, I also admire her for, for this, lifelong dedication to critical thinking and scientific objectivity and yeah and as you said the personality um, and the personal experience that that personal strength that she had to remain objective even under the most difficult personal circumstances um, so for instance when she was as a as a Jewish person um, traveling to Jerusalem to report about the process of um, Adolf Eichmann um, and she had a very, very critical view of that, um, which did not please um, most of, of the public um, at that time when she did it as a journalist. And, and also, yeah, in, in terms of, for instance, the, the, the relevance that she has in, in our present time, I think particularly in the, in the recent few years, changes in, in Europe and, and overseas um, and populism increasing and yeah, in the US and Brazil and in, in other countries in Germany and, and elsewhere in England. So she, she wrote a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism, which are really relevant and really, really interesting to read if you look at, um, yeah, she, she essentially develops the concept of, of totalitarianism there. That's always a sign of a, of a great theorist that, you know, 50, 60 years later, their work still maintains such strong relevance. That's always a good sign of a, of a very influ influential political theorist or political philosopher. So, yeah, I she was never scared of, uh, of, of saying the wrong thing, let's say, or saying the things that might make other people uncomfortable. So, yeah, I've, I've always had a lot of respect for her. I'd love to actually explore her work a little bit more. I think this might have um, 
um, inspired me to do that after this interview. But moving on to the second question, I suppose the second question is a little bit more focused around the topic that we're dealing with um, in this interview. And it's talking about, you know, how, you know, a, a very personal question, how, how did you kind of take care of your mental health during lockdown? Because, you know, lockdown has been really tricky for a lot of people, being, you know, stuck indoors and not being able to see friends and family can be quite difficult. And it's always quite good to kind of share a few experiences of, all right, this is how I, you know, took care of mental health, whether it be, you know, meditating, going for runs, starting a new hobby, something like that, you know, what, what are some things that you decide to do during lockdown to kind of just take care of your mental health? Mm, yeah, no, that that is a difficult um, phase. So when the first lockdown started last year, I had just entered my final phase of the PhD um, and PhD write up. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the um, the pandemic kind of um, aligned with my I mean, if there's any time in your life that that a, a national lockdown uh, can be helpful, I guess that for me, that was the time. And so I just I mean, I, I tried to see it as as um yeah, as an opportunity to um, focus on my work, which helped in a way to deal with anxiety or with any, yeah, with the um, scares that the pandemic had. And I, what I did was I had a quite rigid regime that was essentially very repetitive, a routine. Um, I, I don't know, I would wake up at the same time every day. I would do exercise. I would work for a few hours. I would have lunch. Um, I would go out. I, I would go for a walk usually every evening in the neighborhood, particularly when it came towards spring, because um, it helped me to clear my head. And then, yeah, calling friends, meditation um, every day, yeah. and mm, baking on the weekends. Nice. That's important. <laughs> baking on the weekend. I, I like that. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I think anything therapeutic like that obviously helps. And you touched upon a really good point about establishing a routine. And I watched a program recently, actually, on the BBC iPlayer about improving your mental health. And one of the things that kind of struck me a little bit was just about addressing all the basics, getting good sleep in, exercising, and kind of incorporating things like meditation. But meditation alone isn't, isn't itself a, a kind of the only technique. Baking can also create the same feelings and um, experience as meditation does kind of just closing your mind off focusing on one thing um obviously can, can, can help a lot so it feels like you've ticked all the boxes um in, in managing your mental health effectively during the lockdown so yeah well, well, well done and the lockdown's put the perfect time to just sit down and write the thesis through there's no there's no way to distract yourself which is which is quite good uh so it is it is kind of the perfect time to to just get that that phd done and dusted so i think uh you know, obviously lockdown wasn't a great thing, but it was quite convenient in terms of getting that PhD done. <laughs> yeah. So to the topic of the interview, mental health. One in four people are affected by mental health issues each year, with close to a billion affected worldwide. Depression, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are all examples of mental health issues. The UN has made it a core statement as part of their sustainable development goals and governments worldwide are now waking up to the sleeping giant, which is mental health. Mental health issues cost close to 100 billion in England alone and therefore addressing this head on is economically attractive. But more importantly, it has the potential to really improve the way we live and experience our lives. Nicole, it'd be great if you could summarise the work that you've been doing in respect of mental health. 
Yeah, thanks, Anik. Um, so I'm, I mean, my work as as part of what the um, global global mental health community um, does and has been doing um, for the past um, decades already um, is, is helping trying to support people um, to get more access to mental health services, but also raising the profile of mental health and mental illness and policy. And so I specifically um, have been working on a number of projects, mostly focused on low and middle income countries um, and improving the situation for these countries. Um, I also um, did some research in the UK um, and in high income countries, but um, currently I'm yeah, mostly working on um, yeah, seeing what the issues are and how we can improve people's access to care in, in low and middle income countries. So for instance, with the Emilia study, um, we're looking at um, testing a, a technology-based, a app-based version of a mental health a service provision tool. So it's called the um, MH Gap, and and we're trying to see if if there's an improvement if people use um, remote supervision and and access um, or try these this um, this app rather than a paper version because that might be easier and helpful for countries who have little access. At the same time, there's there's a lot of work that I've done on or I'm doing around um, stigma and discrimination um, in relation to mental health and mental illness, because that is a very important issue that limits people, inhibits people from seeking care um, in the first place, or even recognizing that they might need help or that a family member might need help. Um, and also it, it, it affects policymakers' decision to even take up mental health as an issue um, seriously in, in their policy decisions. And I think that's precisely the thing I wanted to get into was actually the aspect of stigma. And one thing that I started to realize was stigma is something that we haven't really addressed enough. Uh, we've definitely started talking about mental health a lot more in the last decade or so. so um, but stigma is still an element that needs research and needs a little more exploration. And how much has stigma actually affected how um, policies have been shaped or, or how effective we've been with tackling mental it's, health? Um, the it, that's hard to to give a precise answer because I think I personally think that it has affected and it still affects massively our day to day interactions with each other um, and those with with of research with policy or policy with with practice um, in terms of mental health but also certainly in, in terms of other um, health conditions and there's more research from other. Um, health areas, but in particular to mental health, we're really facing a sort of um, lack of knowledge on, on how much um, stigma impacted. We do know we have, we have some, so for instance, the Indigo program that I've been working on has been doing um, in 2005, 2006, they've been doing first um, assessments of global mental health stigma around the world. And they did find that that it, it does impact almost everyone around the world. So that means it, it's include it's including policymakers. But I'm not aware of any specific assessment of measuring stigma or measuring how much stigma impacts policymakers' decisions um, in in including mental health, for instance, in policies. But what so my my PhD research was on. Um, looking at translating, how we can translate research into mental health research into policy and improve that. 
And one of the findings that even though I didn't specifically look at stigma or measure stigma, but an interesting finding was that it appears that stigma still has quite, um, quite some influence on how policymakers view or review evidence um, of mental health or not, uh, or choose to ignore it. One of the things that you raised in uh, one of your papers that you did previously was about looking at stigma reduction interventions. And what I was quite fascinated by, so, so whilst, <clears throat> whilst developing countries have used things like education um, and kind of therapeutic methods, one of the things that wasn't used or, or analysed as much was social contact. Mm. And wh why is social contact a really effective measure for, for reducing stigma? Yeah, that's right. So we know that social contact is the essentially the most effective um, measure to reduce stigma. Um, and if you, I mean, why exactly it works and how it works in different parts of society um, is, is yet to be explored in detail, but we do know it does work. And if you think about it, I mean, when I, when I think about my personal experience, whenever I learn something or whenever I hear about something, whatever it is, I, I take in the information, but I don't really experience the information and, and process it perhaps in a different way. But when, for instance, I don't know, when someone tells me they have cancer or I read about people who have cancer, I, I think that's terrible and that's, that's, that's very bad. But if I know someone and I hear from them and I see them, what they're going through, in the situation, I suddenly get such a different experience of what it means to have cancer or in the case of mental health problems, what it means to live with a mental health problem or what it means to live with a mental illness. And at the same time, it's, it's the experience of this is me. I mean, I'm looking at another human being. I see, okay, it could, this, you're human. You could be, they might be your friend. They might be your neighbor. And it, it reduces the, well, both that, that, that feeling of not knowing or not really understanding, but also I think it, yeah, it gives us really a sense of this person is not dangerous because in most cases, when you see someone, so the people that I've worked with who have experienced mental health problems, um, I mean, you know, they're amongst us, one in four people, at least we know have a mental health problem. Um, I've experienced challenges myself. I think many people can, can, can sort of relate to that. And then if you see someone talking about that in a very normal way and hearing them, how they struggled and how they deal with it, it, it also gives ownership to them, but also our understanding of, of, I don't know, in very few moments you grasp the concept of, okay, mental illness is just one illness and recovery is possible and you can live on, you can have a good life and it, it sort of normalizes the concept. That's my impression. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you kind of acknowledge the human interaction level and how that, I think, having an understanding and, and a general understanding of, of mental health on a, on, a, on a public level can really shape whether or not you'll see the policymakers make the decisions or 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 decide to really look at mental health and, and provide the assistance that's needed. So I was kind of looking at how, how why that could be really influential in low to middle income countries where there is a bit more stigma 
And I suppose maybe some of these countries then have that aspect of, oh, well, you know, we don't want to look at it, we don't want to address it. And that's why maybe some of the policies that, that are needed are not put into place. Is that something that's correct? Or is it a little bit of a generalization of, of, of what's taking place? Mm, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, I agree that that definitely is one of the reasons why mental health is not um, a very popular policy issue at the moment. Um, I mean, if you think about it, if you're a policymaker and you have to deal with a lot of things per day, hundreds of different topics, even if you're just a health policymaker, um, say minister or, or even bureaucrats, you have to deal with so many complex different issues. And, and in particular, um, in, in low and middle income countries, we see that there's a lot of other pressing um, physical health issues, I don't know, from neglected tropical diseases to um, increasingly, yeah, cancer also, but, but certainly often HIV and other um, inf infectious diseases that we see. Um, and so if you could have a very simple solution, for instance, say for malaria, you could say, okay, well, we, we know that bed nets are very effective. So you make a, you take a decision to provide people with, I don't know, 100,000 or 500,000 people with bed nets and, and you invest your money in that, that is a fairly quick and straightforward decision and you can you know that you're very likely to help lots of people. Um, with mental health, it's on the one hand we have the stigma, but on the other hand, the decision making is much more complex it appears because simply because there are a lot of interactions of mental health and other um, health issues, but also socioeconomic influences, um, and and even yeah, we see that national security, for instance, can have so wars certainly do have an impact on mental health and vice versa. Um, it can can be helpful when you're um, uh, in a good mental state, and so I think it is important to see that there's there's a number of issues, and then if in addition the stigma comes to it, I think then if you have to make a quick decision, um, where do you go and where do you take the decision? Do you look at a complex health issue where sometimes it's not even clear which is the most effective because we have such a gap in, in research as well. So we, we need, there's more research needed on, on specific interventions and to see how they work in each group. So for instance, with stigma research itself, we see that what works in which group most effectively, more, more research is needed to find out about this. And so if you're facing that decision about a lot of unclarity, perhaps then it's much easier to decide, well, I'm, I, I just can't make this decision right now. I'm going to, to invest that part of the health budget in something else to, yeah, also to be perhaps responsible. To, to, I think it's in a way often, oftentimes that it's not on purpose and it's not necessarily that policymakers hold um, visible negative stereotypes um, or stigma against people, but it's it's something that is subliminally there probably in, in many of us, yeah. I mean, th there is evidence as, as you outline in some of your papers about the negative consequences of stigma. You know, for example, it is associated with reduced employment opportunities, you know, poverty, and of course that is not even, that doesn't even cover the actual issues that individual is going through from a health perspective. And so, and so thinking about all of that, how, how can we create a more inclusive society? And, and to, to Deepak's point earlier, 
make it a topic that politicians want to talk about on a regular basis? Mm, yeah, that's that's another very tricky question, I think. But um, I think there are some some points that can bring us perhaps closer to an answer, which firstly, I think we need to increase the visibility of people with lived experience in everything that we do. So in research on mental health um, people who experience mental health issues should be the ones mostly also involved in this to contribute to this, which we I mean, service user led research is, is is still yeah not not very popular. It's increasing. Um, this is relevant, but also in in our communications with policy, it's very relevant. So even though we know that social contact is is effective, it's not as integrated yet as it should be that people with mental health um, with lived experience of mental health problems are participating to this or are enabled to participate to this, because this is another critical factor um, to build the capacity of people um, with mental health problems to um, sort of train them to be mental health champions and to be advocates for mental health that can support the process and can work as, as intermediaries, even perhaps between research um, and policy or between um, policy and practice. Um, and inform the entire process um, so that those those decisions that are being made based on the research, so evidence-based um, policymaking, can also be um, implemented with a large consideration of people who are affected, who are the people um, with lived experience. Um, and in terms of talking about at, or getting policymakers um, more involved, so that's that's part of, uh, or the focus, that was the focus of my PhD research, how we can improve um, the uptake of research evidence in um, policy making in low and middle income countries. And it is very complex if we look at that because the translation, so knowledge translation in general is, is a very complex issue, um, how to get research into policy that we know that for instance, for. Uh, on average, I think in health, it takes uh, up to 17 years until research findings are being implemented in practice. So I'm not sure at what point of those 17 years it hits policy, but it's a very long process. We see now with COVID research, for instance, that in certain emergency situation when catalysts such as the COVID crisis um, occur, then it does speed up the process because everyone is now focusing um, on COVID and COVID um, related issues. So even for mental health, we saw that there was an increase in probably in awareness um, because we see, I mean, there's a lot of reporting um, on the media, but also in, in, in research studies now on the effect of the COVID-19 um, pandemic and, and lockdowns and social um, contact limitations on mental health of people. And this again then brings mental health hopefully further um, on, on the, in terms of visibility, but also on the political agenda of people um, like policymakers and, and people who work as decision makers in policy. Um, but yeah, it's a very complex process. Um, as I've developed a, um, a framework called the Evita framework, which is specifically for low and middle income countries um, to improve research uptake and translation into policy. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a complex process. Well, one of the things that I find quite interesting is is the phrasing 
of mental health and when it's spoken in contrast to physical health or physical fitness there is this let's say exactly stigma associated with the words and there is the more kind of negative type connotations and, and I do think I, I mean I see mental health as less as a negative issue but on the same kind of vein as physical health and that we should train we should go to the gym we should train our emotions like we train our bodies and I think there definitely needs to be a lot more work done on the phrasing and um, of mental health and you know in my mind it we, we should reach hopefully a point where we go to the gym we do a meditation class alongside a class on the treadmill or spinning what, what do you think about that yeah no I fully agree I I I mean, interestingly, uh, this concept, a friend of mine who um, does, or yet at the time did a therapy, she told me um, that she sees it exactly that way. And that was about 20 years ago. Um, that it's something as, as just like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym for, say, I don't know, four weeks and then you, you stop because you're fit. No, you keep um, sort of taking care of your mental health. For instance, for children in school to learn about the relevance of, of, of your mental health and, and not just an exercise class to keep your physical health, but also that it's important to understand if you're happy or why you're perhaps feeling low or what it means when someone in the family has a, an addiction or a problem with alcohol or depression, I think is, is from an early age on really relevant. Um, at the same time, I think what you said about um, these concepts that that are stigmatized around mental health. I mean, it's interesting to hear that because you're not, your main field is not mental health, right? So, because I'm so much enmeshed in, in, in it, I, I don't really perceive it as, well, not, at least I'm not consciously reflecting that I might have some stigma around it, but um, I think I understand what you mean. And I know that in some countries of the world, for instance, in, in Japan, um, they've, they've changed names for some of the mental illnesses to remove that stigma that was associated with a specific um, word, um, for instance, such as schizophrenia or depression. And I mean, it's interesting because I know that in different cultures, different diseases might have slightly different connotations. So I know, for instance, in um, in Germany, when you there's a slight thing when you say you um, have a burnout, it's almost as if you earned, um, you know, you earned a medal for working so hard that you just can't do anything anymore, and that in a way, in a, in a sort of perverse way, that's also a sort of yeah wrong perception of the issue, and then the stigma around that. Um, that for instance, also in Germany, if you have a mental health problem and you seek care via the equivalent of the German NHS, um, you're never liable, you're never allowed anymore, you will never ever be accepted for life insurance in your, in your life ever. So if you have cancer, yes, you can get a life insurance, I believe, um, or if you had cancer and you've been cured from cancer, but if you ever had an eating disorder, depression or whatever, you, you're not allowed to get a life insurance. And I think that's highly stigmatizing and particularly um, from, from a policy perspective, there should, things should be um, taken to remove this. Um, but yeah, things are moving slow, also in high income countries. 
this discussion gives me a lot of hope though because it, it really shows how much these policies are can be changed influenced by the conversation that we have and that shows how much actually power we've got how much influence we've got to really um shape and change the kind of policies that come into place so just touching on that in terms of like just the, the power of, of the people uh, of, of of the everyday person to start talking about um the you know the, the stigma around mental health and how that can really actually influence and change um the policies that are being made do you, do you think there's there's a lot of validity in that idea that, that the more we discuss it the more i suppose there's a cultural shift in um in in you know in in the country in this in the state um can really help actually make those significant and important changes uh to facilitate the right kind of um protection for people that struggle with mental health issues yeah i definitely i definitely agree um i think it's is really important and really helpful to talk about it and i think particularly for people who are you have a certain outreach i mean it's important to talk with it about about it with your friends but the fact that yeah for instance you're producing this um this podcast will will have some contribution um and then people who are sort of i don't know vips or or people in in the public sphere i don't know youtubers talking about their mental health experience or um there's this guy i'm i'm just trying to remember his name hussein almanir so he's um he's doing some public um speaking and he's involved both on on the research side from our institute um but also he's he's making these public speeches about his struggle with mental health and he's a he's a he's a very cool and young guy and i probably he has a youtube channel or something um and this is really a different approach to mental health which i think for instance i as a as a researcher would never have to um to portray that authenticity and that credibility and trust that they can really bring to their own um communities so because because i think there's a lot about um i mean going back for instance to to the whole impact of, of i don't know hana arend and totalitarianism and why people might follow other people i think it is it is about trust and who you can identify with and who you believe will be able to sort of speak out for you and i i think it is about finding people for different groups that represent that and then that i think can have a massive impact and they can really be catalysts to to translate that and build up that sort of um critical mass that we might need to get to a tipping point where then we have um we see change just to add one more thing that i think is important when we think about um talking about mental health and and the more we talk about it the better i think there's there's perhaps one limitation to it which is that for instance we sometimes see that stigma might be re, or can reinforce if we talk about mental health in a specific way so we need a certain awareness perhaps to to when we talk about it so for instance i don't know if you heard it but but i've seen at least online on twitter or elsewhere or heard people say oh i'm i'm a little bit ocd or i oh she's so ocd or things like that and in a way it's good yeah we talk about a mental illness but at the same time there's a risk of trivializing it and and sort of making again stigmatizing people who are experiencing a very disabilitating um condition and and so we need to be aware i think that there's always you know 
um, that self-reflection perhaps necessary. I suppose this really nicely moves into um, the third topic that we wanted to touch upon was science communication. It's something that myself and Anika are really passionate about. One of the reasons why um, this podcast has really come about is to talk about how those that have the knowledge can communicate um, their expertise to the people that need to know it. And, and I think a lot of your research, Nicole, has been focused on the idea of science communication to policymakers. And could you just give us a little bit of a of a kind of insight into what the research was like and you know, what approaches you would suggest and recommend and, and some of the experiences that you've had. Right, so essentially science communication is really complex and that has been known for a long time by other people who have been researching that in general. We know that it's really, well, it's really difficult. And, and if I speak, if I say science communication, what I was looking at in specific or specifically is the communication or the translation of research evidence into policy and then further on to practice. And we have a lot of research that looks in, in essentially how to get research into practice or how to get policy implemented in practice. And I was specifically looking at that third part of, if you want a triangle, which is how to get research into policy. And that is just like the other two, it's really complex because essentially, research translation occurs in a very complex fluid system, which includes many and multiple research clouds, the policy spheres and other networks that are involved. So there's a lot of things going on and a lot of challenges. So we know that um, yeah, implementation of research into practice can take up to 17 years, so 17. And that means one part of the whole process of translating research into practice is that policy communication. Now, I, I've been looking at how we can make it, well, how we can facilitate that a little bit in the specific context of mental health in low and middle income countries. We, we spent a lot of the episode talking about how we could address stigma. And how do you think you know, people like yourself and other researchers could work more closely with policymakers and other stakeholders in the industry to really improve uh, the awareness of stigma, but also address mental health as an issue as itself. Yes, and my research, I, I have looked at how we can improve this. And you're right, um, Anique, that it, stigma is really one of the factors that is limiting the translation um, of evidence into policy and practice. And I think much more research is needed to investigate how and why stigma influences that. But in my research, at least what I've looked at was not specifically the stigma element, but how we can improve the overall translation of research into policy. And I've developed a couple of, well, 10 um, key recommendations that can be taken on by researchers and by others involved in the mental health, global mental health field, and in, in the yeah, research policy and practice um, communication. Um, and yeah, for instance, one of the key things, because it's not a, a short term process, so one of the key things is you need to understand the overall complexity of the knowledge system. So you need to understand who is in that system, where are your research clouds, who are the enactors, who are the people who are implementing it, how does the policy sphere look like? You need to have relationships with these people. That's the second point. You need to build these and foster these relationships. You need to design a policy impact strategy. So look at how and plan how you can really get your research into policy. You need to engage 
with the networks, with the individuals, there are key individuals that are driving the translation of research evidence and they're intermediaries. So intermediaries are helping to translate that evidence that is very specific for research, for instance, to translate it to the context of policy and to the context of practice. Um, and also seek um, support from advocacy coalitions that are helping to push um, your issue. You need to build and maintain trust. And that's a really difficult thing because it takes a long time. You need to have good quality evidence, good reliable individuals. Um, and also try, try to be empathetic and understand policymakers' realities and needs. As a researcher, we're very immersed in our own um, spheres. So it's really relevant to go out of that bubble and look at, okay, what are the realities in policy and certainly also in practice when it comes to implementing these? Um, you need to frame the evidence to existing policy problems and present clear solutions. So not just a general recommendation will, will help policy, but really frame the mental health related evidence to any issues. So for instance, if crime rates have gone up, just look at how this might be related to social deprivation, for instance, and the mental health impact that has been going on there in people and look at, at those and then provide the evidence to and in solution terms to policy. And then um, you need to tell the story of your evidence. So make it personal, make it emotional and relatable. So one of the key points really in this is that we need to connect with people with lived experience. So we saw and we know that this is also a factor that really reduces stigma. Um, and these people who are owning the story, so people who have had the experience of, of mental health problems really should be key drivers and key um, individuals engaged in that knowledge translation or research translation process and help to, to make the experience of mental health problems more tangible and relatable and that also decreases stigma and actually has been shown to be very effective in translating research evidence. You also need to align the evidence to other policy priorities so wider than just um, the mental health agenda but really micro policy agendas and then lastly you need to build join and foster evidence policy capacity networks so that's really platforms where where people can exchange between research policy and practice and where knowledge grows and develops and where also key individuals and people with lived experience are really supported and and their capacity is is being strengthened those are my 10 action steps for mental health research to policy agenda setting and hopefully they can be useful to people um, engaged in the process i think it's great that you can really kind of break down in a, a really accessible way how you know approaches you can take with interaction with um with policymakers. i thought one thing i can really take away from is that that kind of him, emotional interaction that actual kind of connection and building a relationship seems to be a really key aspect and a really key point of actually developing um a really effective way of conveying all this messaging or all this information uh to um to the policymakers, would that be correct in terms of kind of that being a really key component of it? Oh yeah, definitely. So so relationships are really the the main and 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 most effective um, driver and 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 facilitator of research um, to evidence translation for mental health in in low and middle income countries. That's what my what I found in my research, and it's something that is 
in a way tricky because it needs a lot of fostering and there's a lot of other factors that come into play. So it's not just about, you know, going and have a coffee with a policymaker, but it's really building a meaningful relationship. So understanding the other person, seeing them, this kind of factor of empathy again, and relating to them and their realities and understanding that. And that's what, what essentially helps to, to build the relationships. And then, um, yeah, continuous engagement also. So involving them in whatever is going on in, in, in projects and, and research that you're doing, um, even if you don't have a personal agenda in this, giving them opportunities to, um, yeah, to also perhaps showcase some, some policy-related issues or, or themselves. Um, yeah, so essentially it's almost like building a, building a friendship perhaps with someone and, and, and trying to, um, or at least a very respectful um, yeah, partnership, ideally. <laughs> uh, I think this is all really useful information for a lot of academics out there. Uh, to step outside the ivory tower and to build some relationships with the practical world. Uh, one last question um, is in terms of, and I think this is something that we've uh, looked at in previous episodes about the way in which the information is maybe provided to the policymakers. I think um, we had one episode where where it was really kind of highlighted that you know they don't like you know a thirty-page article or a sixteen-page article. If you can kind of convey that message or that information in one or two pages, that's quite attractive. Um, that's really a good way of kind of hitting home to the more practical sides of the world. Uh, would you agree with that? Or is it, you know, is it kind of quite flexible? Yeah, I mean, I agree in general that it's it's essentially, yeah, we need to boil the science down. We need to boil whatever we want to say down if we want the other person in their busy realities of life to, to set priorities to what we have. Um, I sorry, my cat, <laughs> um, um, but uh, sorry, shall I start again? No, keep going, keep going, it's fine. <laughs> um, um, yeah, but but I think essentially in my research, what we saw is um, what, what I got, what we got back from people was essentially comments on so-called um, policy briefings, which I think scientists often still think are very, um, helpful or effective and I think they are if you want to boil down your own science and they might also be helpful in situations where very specific situations where policymakers have a very specific interest in the in in that topic but one to two pages can be very long so one of the comments we got from one of the policymakers that I interviewed and he said yeah policy briefings are great. They're great to put your coffee on. And, and he was essentially making a joke how he's piling up those policy briefings. And he didn't mean to be disrespectful, I'm, I'm sure. I think it's just the reality of, of often researchers pushing something out there, hoping that they will be understood or the relevance will be seen. But it's, I think it's more, it goes beyond that. We need to make it very clear. So obviously there's a lot we try to highlight, we try to add pictures, we try to make it visible and tangible and add personal stories. And it is really tricky to, to give life to something that can be as dry as perhaps numbers and, and statistics or, or, or just, yeah, findings that don't really relate, but make it as relatable as possible and boil it down and, and give it to the give the key elements that are relevant and, and critical to catch the attention um, of policymakers. That will help. So I would say ideally one page is better than, uh, than two pages. Nicole, this was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you very much, Anik. Thank you very much, Deepak. It was a pleasure to be here and um, yeah, hope to speak to you again. So that was the interview with uh, Dr. Nicole Votruba. So I think we mentioned this already. This is something we're probably going to hit again um, in the future. It is such a big topic that really does deserve a lot of attention from various different angles. I like this angle of stigma, looking at stigma and the role of stigma and how that really does influence whether or not um, the right policies are made or, or we you know, give the right kind of help that's needed for those struggling or suffering from mental health issues. I thought, you know, that's something that we don't often think about um, enough, but it's, you know, one of those foundational, you know, root issues that probably results in some of the failings in providing the kind of support that's needed. Yeah, I really like the point you raised, uh, Deepa, about kind of if there's such a big stigma, how can people who are trying to design the policy mm. know about this when they're not even talking about it as much, right? Yeah. And I remember listening to a podcast the other day about someone who was kind of leading like the mental health initiative in US government. And he, he had a really good line where he said, this is something that's keeping everyone up at night, but no one wants to talk about it during the day. Yeah. And he was talking, he was referencing like the kind of equivalent of MPs in the US and how they all had him on speed dial, either for themselves or for some for a member of their family. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in you know, they were all acknowledged this was an issue, but they just didn't want to talk about it in public. Yeah. And so that that is like a, that must be a massive roadblock in trying to define policies where people don't want to talk about it yeah and so i thought this angle that nicole has been going at it for a while now is is the perfect entry point to really make headway in trying to address mental health issues yes and i was also thinking in terms like i think stigma is really important or a real impact or significant impacts on certain cultures i think you can look at maybe our cultures asian cultures where mental health is something that's not maybe acknowledged as openly and then those that do struggle within our community uh, don't get the kind of help or support from their family members that they do because there is a stigma around it there is this idea of oh what's that i mean just get on with it um, there's nothing wrong with you just you know, it's just your head that kind of attitude and you know that's still a really prevalent cultural perception or cultural take on on mental health and i think you know it's really important that we do address stigma and how that cultural shift and how when people actually think about this isn't just something that you can just get over that you need help you need support for it that will really help that kind of change and for policymakers to then um, provide the kind of support put in the kind of policies that will you know be really effective yeah i think phrasing and equipping people to Equipping people with the language to talk about mental health is important. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a kind of absence of the right words to express ourselves. Whenever we talk to anyone in, I don't know, in my experience anyway, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? How was your day? It's fine. Yeah. Great. I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> yeah. We're not really talking about our feelings, are we? No. no. Um, it, it, it's a bit surface level. Mm -hmm. And I think if we were able to explore and phrase things in a better way maybe we would have more meaningful conversations that would help us manage those emotions 
because one of the things we did talk about in the podcast which i'm a massive advocate of is like mental health is no different to our approach to physical health you know why can't we talk about it in the same context as, as going to the gym you know you could go to the gym to a spinning class or a cycling class or whatever or use weights we should be able to go to the gym and you know explore and manage and build our resilience in respect of emotions and you know it's, it's you know people have different starting points like you could go to the gym and you can't immediately start lifting crazy amounts of weights but you be start the boss of the gym be the Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> just lifting everything <laughs> but obviously you start somewhere and over time you know on a program you get to certain goals you become stronger and you become fitter and it'll be the same as emotions you're not supposed to enter the emotional gym and be an amazing at it no one really is but you practice at it and over time you become stronger and you're able to manage your emotions in a in a more you know manageable way obviously and so I think if the conversation could start shifting to that I feel like more people will be willing to talk about it because they'll be like this is no different as physical fitness and actually it's empowering to try to do this it's not something we shouldn't talk about and it's degrading in any way um yeah i think um you might have tapped into a business idea too do you think there are any emotional gyms that we could out there we could maybe set some up i don't think there's any emotional gyms but i do have a friend who's doing some exciting work okay. in um in respect of mental health and mm-hmm. and they are exploring that kind of concept mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely see no reason why in five years or 10 years we're going to a gym and some of us are going into a meditation mindfulness class. Mm-hmm. Or some of us are literally booking in a class to talk to someone for 30 minutes. Yeah. And they train together physically mm-hmm. and you know, you're know you addressing both parts of your body. And I, I actually feel like it will end up becoming really empowering. Why wouldn't you? proactively want to manage your emotions even if you don't have any mental health issues per se yeah. why wouldn't you want to tap into those emotions and control that sure. like you want to have full control of your body for physical exercise why, why wouldn't you want at least to try to do that it must be empowering absolutely uh, absolutely i definitely agree with that and i think what's so, what's really i think promising for me is that it is up to us it's not like we have to wait around for a government to do it we can actually start doing it now we can start practicing a lot of the things that are needed to just help help people around this you know those that might be struggling those that are need that support have that conversation you know like you say not don't not just say you know how you doing i'm all right actually get a bit deeper so i think there's such a, a optimism i feel about this topic and about mental health because there is a there is a lot that we can do about it, and I'm really I'm really optimistic and hopeful about the future that we do have. You know, as you say, Anik, we have sessions where we do have just rather than you know physical um, gyms, we have emotional gyms or mental mental welfare gyms, things like that. And, you know that we really something that I definitely advocate, and it's it, it'd be great for us to just be that open about uh, about ourselves. We we can call the gym the mental gym <laughs> the mental gym i like that that'd be quite that sounds cool i i'd be more than happy to go to the mental gym so um yeah as well yeah it'd be good it'd be good and another thing which is something that we do talk about a fair bit and i think is really important for us is science communication and why it's really important that especially for those policymakers, 
academic experts are able to demonstrate, present their uh, knowledge and expertise in a way that um, policymakers are going to sit up and listen, and they'll take it on board when they um, make these decisions, when they make these policies. So we're going to get the most effective um, policies um, for tackling mental health and for tackling stigma issues. So, you know, that's something that I'm really glad we touched upon. And it's a good insight into exactly, you know, what Nicole's research does. It really shows us is an eye opener into that, into that world and how to, how to kind of use the various techniques to make sure that policymakers sit up and listen. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. I've been listening to a fair few podcasts where I'm a, sometimes a little concerned where, how the conversation is um, taking place. There's, there's a lack of experts um, when there are conversations. And for me, that's really dangerous because a lot of people are going to be listening, you know, watching on YouTube, listening to podcasts, and they are listening to people that have an understanding but don't have, you know, the knowledge, the, you know, high degree of expertise to really um, have a meaningful and informative discussion. So I think what is really key about this podcast, and I think is something I'm really proud of, is that we're making sure that the platform is there for the experts to explain what's going on. We're not listening to someone that's maybe read up on it a little bit, or, you know, is maybe part of the media. It's, it's actually the expert explaining, okay, mental health is a big issue. These are some of the concerns, or these are some of the reasons why mental health perhaps doesn't get the attention that it deserves or doesn't get the attention that it needs. And I think that's really important in terms of making sure that the information provided is provided by those that really know it, have done the hard graft of finding out exactly what is going on and what's happening. Yeah, and figuring out a way to give these people bigger platforms is important. And obviously that's why we want to invite them on here because we have a genuine passion for talking to people who literally know what they're doing and have had years of experience in it. And we kind of want to get to the bottom of what they've been doing and how potentially it can change the world, right? Absolutely. But hopefully over time, especially with kind of social media, whilst it's got a lot of flaws, it's also democratized yeah. knowledge and allowed more experts to get their views across in an independent or a direct mm-hmm. way rather it than it being filtered through kind of conventional broadcasters. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that we can get to a place where we'll see experts communicating on a more regular basis. Um, and hopefully they'll be coming on our show. Exactly, exactly. They'll be, they'll be wanting to come on, onto our platform and, and to talk about it. And we can provide that information that people need from the people that have done the work that know it. So, you know, that's really important. And on that kind of point, just about Nicole, I think what I really admire about Nicole is that she is not comfortable, happy just to stay within academia. She's actually doing a lot. I mean, you look at her CV, you look at her biography, she is you know, working with various groups, various um, organizations to actually make a practical impact on the issues of mental health. And I think that is fantastic. That is the kind of academics that we really admire on this podcast. And you know, absolutely, I would you know recommend checking her out on Twitter, checking her out what she you know what she discusses and what she talks about on her various social media platforms, and keep an eye out on on whatever she's doing because you know that's the kind of work I personally definitely really admire in terms of really getting in there and really having that practical interaction, so she can actually make that change and influence the changes that need to happen. Yeah, she's got an extraordinary background mm-hmm. and she definitely transcended academia and some of the groups that she's working with. And, you know, her background at the fundamental 
to STG was mm-hmm. it felt like the start of that. You know, she she'd obviously done a lot of work. Now she wants to actually influence and make change. And you know, you you that's amazing. And that's exactly the type of people that we want to talk to, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even when you say it, I feel like I, should, I just I've got a lot of admiration. There's a lot of bravery to just you know, go out there and you know make that change. So you know, absolutely support what she's doing, and I'm really happy to have had her on um, the podcast. But now you have got the most perfect <laughs> closer that I'm just gonna say goodbye and let you do your thing. <laughs> Stigma was a big part of uh, the show today. So I think this quote is uh, very, 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 very perfect to end the show with. Uh, The worst part about having a mental illness is people expect you to behave as if you don't. See you later.